Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. The Vatican is holding a global summit of bishops called by the Pope to discuss a response to the sexual abuse of minors around the world. But as they began on Thursday, there was an attempt to hijack the proceedings with the publication of a bombshell book, or so it was advertised, inside the closet of the Vatican by the French gay activist Frédéric Martel, an expose, or so it claims, of senior Roman officials who denounce gays thunderously while, at the very least, being closeted homosexuals and, in some cases, secretly paying for sex with young men or demanding sexual favours from pretty seminarians. Well, we know that such people exist, but here we have 500 pages about them by an LGBT activist. I've reviewed the book in This Week's Spectator, I'm joined by Ed Condon, Washington Bureau Chief of the Catholic News Agency and a canon lawyer with wide experience of dealing professionally with sexual abuse scandals. Ed, were you shocked by this book? I was shocked by the quality of the writing. There's a particular kind of continental journalistic prose that is really just infuriatingly self-referential and indulgent and, you know, run-on sentences, errant capitalization of, you know, they couldn't even capitalize Holy See half the time in the book. Double negatives, rhetorical questions, every third sentence ends in an exclamation mark. I mean, it really is bad writing. That's one thing. I mean, in terms of the contents, no, I wasn't shocked at all, actually. It's, it was certainly trying very hard to be scandalous or sound scandalous, but the reality is it, it, this is what you would hear if you spent any amount of time hanging out around the Vatican having lunch with curial officials, which Martel seems to have done for over a period of years. But I don't think he's, he's lifting the lid on any great secrets. He's repeating a couple of well-known rumors. He's very good about um, fearlessly attacking the dead. He repeats allegations against a number of uh, archbishops and cardinals who who have long since died. But he becomes incredibly circumspect for a man apparently attempting an expose when it deals with anyone who's still alive or in a position where they might possibly either deny what he said or um, or come after him in, in his turn. So I, I think as a as a sort of bombshell scandal revelation, this is a bit of a damp squib. But also a very nasty book that it's being suggested bears the fingerprints of a liberal faction in the Vatican close to Pope Francis. Martel goes after conservative prelates who've fallen out with or disagreed with the Pope, most of whom he decides, on really no evidence, must be closeted gays, A, because they oppose gay rights, and B, because they set off his gaydar when they meet him. So I say in my Spectator review, um, he visits uh, Cardinal Müller, the German theologian whom Francis sacked as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith for voicing concerns at the pontiff's DIY theology. The conversation, this is between um, Müller and Martel, is interrupted by a phone call. Müller takes it without apologising. Martel's very prickly about these things and, quote, start speaking, assuming an affected pose. Now he has manners. He starts talking in German in a perfumed voice. If I didn't have a man in front of me, a man who had taken a vow of chastity, and if I didn't hear echoing down the line a baritone voice, I would have understood it to be an intimate call. 
That's the flavour of Martel's prose. And Cardinal Burke, the traditionalist critic of Pope Francis, who wears elaborate robes when he takes part in old rite ceremonies. Well, that's it, basically. He dresses like a woman, says Martel, who doesn't meet Burke, but takes himself off to interview a drag queen who confirms that, therefore, Burke must be gender-fluid. Well, yeah, he he does this all over the book. Um, another example that springs to mind is he has apparently a long interview with uh, Cardinal Jivitz uh, in Poland, and I think he describes it at one point as having an adulterous eye, whatever that means. And, you know, every deployment of an adjective he uses when he's describing someone he's speaking to seems calculated to cast a shade one way or another. And he has this, this way of treating any sort of aesthetic as, as linked to sexuality, which I think is, says a lot more about him than it does about any of the people he met with. Some of his use of language, some of his caricatures of the people that he's interviewing is probably best considered rude, considering these people gave him an interview in the first place. But, I mean, it really is the sort of journalistic equivalent of schoolboy humor a lot of the time. And the other thing is, he's not at all consistent in his portrayal of people. I mean, Pope Francis, who's, you know, bound to be the sort of major figure in any book you want to write about the Vatican today, much as any pope would be the major figure in any book written about the Vatican at any point, he's not, he's not even consistent about in one chapter about the Pope's time in Argentina, he closes the chapter by quoting someone as saying that the thing about Jorge Bergoglio, Pope Francis, is that he's uh, an octogenarian Peronist. And so he's very populist and left-wing on economic issues, and he's very conservative on moral and sexual issues, and you can't expect any different, and that's just who he is. And then in the subsequent chapter, which I think is on the, the Synod on the Family, he describes the Pope as waging a secret war in favor of the Church recognizing gay unions and, you know, a sort of great crusading champion behind the scenes to get the church to change its teaching on sexuality. Now, these are completely incoherent and inconsistent portrayals of the same man in subsequent chapters. It doesn't, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make for a good book or a convincing read. I agree, because apart from anything else, it's hard to be convinced by an author who doesn't know the difference between serving and celebrating mass, who seems surprised that a priest who isn't a bishop, is addressed as Monsignor, and gets confused about the difference between the church's line on being homosexual and having gay sex, which is Catholic Sexual Morality 101. But he skipped that class because he was too busy talking to drag queens about fancy vestments. So one of the th questions that I put this book down with was at several points during the narrative, Martel reminds us that he's a very prominent journalist. Now, admittedly, I don't read as much French press as perhaps I should, but I'm not aware of what his area of expertise normally is, but it doesn't seem to be the Vatican. Uh, he doesn't seem to have any clear idea of the network of structures or people that's fairly apparent to anyone who's spent any time there. Uh, he's describing the preparations for the Synod of the Family, for example, and he says that Cardinal Baldessari, who's the General Secretary of the Synod of Bishops, had a war machine of a team, uh, which included Archbishop Bruno Forte and Cardinal Peter Erdo. Now, these are two clerics that I've never heard put in the same sentence together as either personal or ideologically sympathetic. Uh, in fact, Cardinal Erdo, far from being part of a war machine to advance pro-gay union language in the text of the synodal documents, opened the synod, as I recall, with a very sort of traditional catechetical uh, speech, which really set the tone for the whole thing. And, you know, a lot of people took after him in the press at the time as saying that he was in some way being unsympathetic to the Pope's agenda. Now, 
this book certainly doesn't offer any any real conclusive proof or even persuasive argument that one that was the pope's agenda in the first place or two that cardinal erdo was somehow part of a a group with archbishop bruno forte it, it just doesn't make sense and he's wrong also on on little things that show that he doesn't know his subjects well he gives an extended interview at one point to cardinal baldessari whom he quotes as saying that pope francis doesn't like music now it's been my understanding admittedly i I don't know Pope Francis personally, but it's been my understanding that one of the few personal details people do know about him is that he actually has a very keen musical ear. He does have a keen musical ear. I've talked to members of the Sistine Chapel Choir who tell me the Pope will demand a particular piece by Mozart and add, make sure you use the 1787 version, not the 1785 one. And he's even on record as saying, which of Knappertsbush's many recordings of Parsifal is best? But this is the only bit in the book where I feel sorry for Martel. He's just had to listen to Cardinal Baldessari playing the piano, as I once did. And I wouldn't blame Pope Francis for telling Baldessari that he doesn't like music as a way of getting out of his dreaded impromptu recitals. But the fact that Baldessari gave Martel an extended interview doesn't surprise me, because... Balisari has scores to settle against traditionalists, and one assumes that he's hoping Marta will do it for him. Well, so if someone's given him a script to read from, it's, it's a particularly incoherent one. He actually ends up confirming one of Archbishop Vigano's central allegations, which is that he told Pope Francis about Cardinal McCarrick having a long history of sexually corrupting seminarians. Now, I'm not going to take Martel's word for it, so I don't consider this conclusive proof of anything, but if he was given some sort of brief to discredit Archbishop Vigano, I think it's backfired pretty spectacularly. The other thing that struck me about this is he actually has a line in the book where he says, I want to, hang on, let me find it, because I want, to, I want to do him justice here. Martel says, in this book, I will use the Vigano testimony prudentially because it mixed verified or probable facts with pure slander. Now, I can't think of a better description of this book then um, not even probable facts. I would say, you know, reasonably well-known gossip with pure slander. So the fact that he's able to unironically say this about Archbishop Vigano's testimony, make of Vigano's testimony what anyone wants, to sort of set himself sneeringly above it, um, I think it requires a level of irony that perhaps I'm just not equipped to understand or perceive. But there are whole passages in the book where Martel does sound as if he's taking dictation from... Father Antonio Spadaro, the Pope's media advisor and most aggressive cheerleader. Spadaro himself, interestingly, is described as a delightful intellectual, which is a description that only Father Spadaro would recognise. Well, one of the things that, that I did notice in this is the way he describes some, you know, what people choose to call either traditionalist or conservative cardinals or archbishops or whatever, there is a familiar ring to the language. He never describes someone as being conservative. They're always ultra-conservative or far-right. Uh, there's, you know, there's, no, there's no shades of grey in, in his language for that. Um, and also, hypocrisy and rigidity go hand in hand. I don't think either word is ever deployed without the other in the text of the book, that to be rigid doctrinally is to, by nature, be hypocritical. I could see that echoing certain people around the Vatican who might perhaps have it in or consider uh, it useful for them to discredit many of the people who've had innuendo thrown at them in this book. 
But again, I, I question Martel's motives, or rather lack of them. I, if, the, if he has received a brief, I don't know to what extent he buys into it, because with one or two exceptions, he seems to be pretty sneering about everyone he comes across. I mean, he, he rails against pretty much the entire synod of bishops as a bunch of, uh, what is he called, closeted homosexuals crammed full of contradictions and internalized homophobia. I, I'm not sure what his what Martel's agenda is with this book, if he has one. I could I could readily believe that there's a difference between who would speak to him, depending on um, what they wanted this book to, to say and how they wanted it to come out, that that would have influenced who would who would give him time to speak. But, I mean, in terms of his own internal hopes and dreams for how this will move the needle in the Vatican, I really don't think we're any the wiser. We're not, with the exception of the claim that the Pope knew about McCarrick from day one, which slips out by accident. We're certainly not any wiser when it comes to information that might embarrass Pope Francis. So Martel goes to Argentina to discover the real Bergoglio, and then suddenly announces that the claims that the future Pope covered up sex abuse in Argentina lie outside the scope of this book. Why? Likewise, there's, there's no discussion, mysteriously, of the financial and sexual scandals, widely publicised, involving the Pope's very close ally, Cardinal Maradiaga of Honduras, which was supposedly being investigated by the Vatican. Which leads us with the question, what effect will the book have on the Vatican summit on sex abuse? And what can we expect from this summit? which is, to repeat, about abuse of minors, not bishops having sex with young men, including seminarians. I don't know to what extent it's going to have any effect on the way the Pope's summit of the World's Bishops' Conference leaders is going to actually proceed in the next couple of days. The agenda is pretty tightly set, and I don't see there being much room for deviation from that at this point. But one thing that he advances, I mean, he has these sort of, you know, rules of the closet in the Vatican or whatever that he... That he comes out with throughout the book. The one of those that I do have some time for, and I don't credit him with coming up with it because it's something that's been said by a number of people um, in the last year uh, as the church has been rocked by scandal after scandal, which is that when some people speak of clericalism being at the root of priestly sexual abuse, other people say, well, hang on, the real problem here is there is a culture of looking the other way. And the reason for that is many so the theory goes, many priests and bishops have themselves illicit sex lives going, and so that disposes them to turning a blind eye to other people's illicit sex lives, which can even be abusive. That's not a proven thesis, but I also don't think it's prima facie unreasonable to suggest that it could be true. A lot of people have been suggesting that the narrowed focus on the summit this week is really unhelpful, that they're bringing the world's bishops together to tell them that it's very important that children not be sexually abused, and I, I'm not aware of anyone who doesn't think that. The real problem with sexual abuse in the church, clerical sexual abuse, isn't to do with people, pardon the bluntness of my language, raping five-year-olds. That makes up a serious minority of cases everywhere and always. The vast majority of clerical sexual abuse cases involve predation on teenagers and vulnerable adults. And this is what the summit doesn't seem prepared to discuss or address. Sounds to me as if this summit is in denial. I think probably the thing that will haunt this meeting 
um, both during and afterwards and and could overshadow its credibility whatever it achieves is the failure to discuss the fact that sexual abuse as it's currently codified in the discipline of the church is inconsistent morally and legally that you can treat something a relationship between a priest and a teenager as uh, the worst possible crime the church has a law for and then one day later um, if that teenager goes from being 17 to 18 on the stroke of midnight on their 18th birthday it suddenly becomes merely a problematic relationship between uh, presumed consenting adults and that is a real problem it sabotages the credibility of everything that this that every remedy that tries to be addressed that tries to address this topic that until you say that no there the problem here is the abusive sexual relationship not the specific age of the person being abused then I don't think we're going to see a coherent answer because if you focus, as this summit is very narrowly setting out to do, just the sexual abuse of minors legally defined, then you're really excluding a whole range of victims, including the vast majority of Theodore McCarrick's victims, by the way. Will this summit achieve anything at all? I think there's scope for the summit to achieve something. I don't think there's any question that there are parts of the world where the sexual abuse of minors is not considered a priority. Now, you can you can make an argument in different parts of the world whether or not it needs to be a particular priority there whether it's as far advanced in say parts of um well i don't want to pick somewhere somewhere in particular to make myself a hostage to fortune but i i don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that the 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 problem of sexual abuse of minors is not the same always and everywhere that it's different in different cultures in different contexts and i think that's fair to say and i think it's fair to say that there needs to be a universal appreciation of this is not a particular problem just in one place, whether it's the United States or Latin America, that this is a problem that the whole church needs to be aware of and take seriously. At the same time, I think that they're addressing basic principles at a time when the crisis is worse than the church and a whole new generation of scandal. One of the contradictions that I've noticed going into this summit is that the, the sort of structures and the sort of responsibilities that are being presented as responsible in the face of child sexual abuse are echoing really the sort of measures that were taken by the United States bishops in 2002 with the so-called Dallas Charter and USCCB essential norms. And that's fine. But what about the scandals in the United States? If the Dallas Charter is working and all the science suggests that it is, there's been a steep decline in reported sexual abuse cases over the last few decades, but the church is still in grave crisis around sexual abuse and your summit on sexual abuse is promoting the Dallas Charter as an answer, then it doesn't seem to me that they're addressing the scandal that is most pressing. And that is a problem. I think a lot of American Catholics, for example, are expecting something that they can hold on to, something that will be the beginning of an answer to the scandals they've seen in the last seven, eight, nine months. Um, and I think they're going to be frustrated. Ed Condon, thanks very much.